Paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Greg Graffin is lead singer and a songwriter for the iconic punk rock band Bad Religion, as well as an Ivy League-educated zoologist who received a master's and PhD from Cornell University. And therein lies the contradictory ideals at play in his life, as detailed in his new memoir titled Punk Paradox. This is my second conversation with Greg. The first, episode number 62 of Books on Pod, was all about Bad Religion's memoir, Do What You Want. Highly recommend you check that out after this conversation. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me back. It's my pleasure. So uh, having read both of these books now, both uh, Do What You Want, which is the Bad Religion memoir, and now your own personal memoir, it does kind of feel like uh, part of the intent here was to fill in some of the gaps left by Do What You Want. Was that part of the goal, and was there anything else that you were hoping to accomplish with this book? Well, uh, accomplishment is you know one thing. Put that aside for a minute, because <laughs> sometimes as a writer, both a songwriter and a, a book writer, you know, it's sort of an impulse. So you're kind of doing it out of impulse. You don't know what the result will be. With that being said, though, I I look at our band history and do what you want as kind of a chronology of the band itself, because there's so many aspects to the story of bad religion. You know, there's so many individuals involved that you can't help but write more of a chronology of the entity, you know, the, the group effort. And that's what do what you want kind of re- reads like is a, is a chronology of almost anything that you'd be interested in as a fan of the band or a fan of punk, you know, you can, it, it's all in there. But in my book, uh, the most recent one, Punk Paradox was written um, more as uh, an individual story of one character. And that's, what I tried to do is make it an autobiographical, almost like an autobiographical novel. I wanted to give it some of the elements of storytelling that we couldn't achieve in Do What You Want or that Jim Ruland couldn't achieve because necessarily he was talking when he wrote that book to so many different elements of the band. It was really interesting learning some of the details of your childhood that that really helped to shape uh, who you ultimately became as an adult. Your parents were people who uh, really liked to question things. They liked to get together with friends to question norms. And uh, you still uh, recall just uh, listening in a passive manner as watching uh, some Monty Python movies as a kid as they were uh, having gatherings at their house. And uh, interestingly, you, you got to watch live music at a smoky Milwaukee Jazz Club at the age of seven. How did this uh, end up fueling a lifelong pursuit of musical success? Yeah, well, as I detail in the book, you know, the I, I was kind of clinging to my mom's uh, apron strings, although she didn't wear many aprons. But <laughs> um, <laughs> she was involved in a relationship with a jazz musician. And, uh, you know, I was probably in competition for her attention. I didn't want to leave her side. So she ended up reluctantly bringing me along to watch her boyfriend play in these clubs. And uh, I was uh, hypnotized or mesmerized by what was going on on stage. The lights, the sound, probably the smoky aroma of the venues and uh, 
between songs, the jiggling in the glass of uh, of ice over in the glasses that people were drinking and the sounds at the bar and everything about it. But I can't say that that's what inspired me. I can just say that it gave me a familiarity with uh, being around music and being around stages. You, your mom, your brother, and Chuck end up moving to California in 1976. How did this cross-country journey provide a uh, sort of disdain for rural Kansas? Well, that, <laughs> that that's a softball question, isn't it? Because sure is. you already read that section on on what happened. But, you know, so I guess this is a spoiler alert. But it's just one of the early episodes in the book that I talk about. My mom and, and Chuck, you know, they were a mixed race couple. Uh, so Chuck was black and uh, he was sitting in the passenger seat. Mom was driving our, our Buick uh, LeSabre that was given to her by her father. So it's an old big sedan, four-door. And in Kansas, some truckers basically boxed us in at 75 miles per hour and ran us off the road. Now, as a kid, I'm only uh, 11 years old at this time. You don't really know what's going on. We came from a place where, it, you know, at least it was not overt that there was racism. You know, Milwaukee was a, even though it was, it was somewhat segregated, the area where Chuck lived was definitely in neighborhoods that we would consider Black neighborhoods. But, you know, it was an urban setting in Milwaukee that, there wasn't this overt racism, at least it wasn't apparent to a kid of 11 years old. And in Kansas, you know, so it didn't dawn on us that, hey, maybe these these guys are bigots. And uh, I didn't actually understand it, even after they ran us off the road. And my mom, you know, skillfully navigated the car to a complete stop. Uh, I had to ask her what the, you know, mom what are those guys so angry about? Like, how could they be mad at a family traveling cross country? You know, is Kansas really like this? And she just said they were prejudiced. And that was the first time it, it dawned on me that uh, there are people that are willing to do harm just because they see things they don't like in the complexion of a family. And that had a, a very lasting impression on me. You remember the details of that club? You obviously remember the details of that. There's a story a little bit later on, just an awful story that is the end of your mom's relationship with Chuck. Do you still vividly remember the details of those, uh, in some cases, traumatic events all these years later? Of course. You know, the that's uh, you said it best. Uh, it's traumatic. And yeah. uh, trauma never leaves you. So when there's domestic violence, uh, you remember it vividly. And, um, you know, sometimes um, it's it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to write about. Yeah. But um, ultimately, it's uh, important. Your trauma should never be um, erased from your memory. I think it helps you. You can build on it mm. and uh, be a better person. And uh, also, it helps you with one of the most important things in life and difficult things to do, and that's forgiveness. So, uh, you know, I think there's an important element to it. And I, you know, I just urge people who experience trauma to try to find a way um, to exercise it and talk about it and hopefully, you know, do it in a productive way.
Yeah, no doubt about that. Now, you admit throughout this entire book that the stereotypical lifestyle affiliated with punk, the drug use, the violence, and that general nihilism, it never really appealed to you. So why did you initially turn punk, Greg? Well, what should become clear also, because I detail it uh, in the earlier parts of the book, before I was punk, music had such a, a motivational and... Um, developmental effect on my psyche that I couldn't uh, get over the music of punk, you know? So I guess I was, I was willing to endure some of the ugly aspects of punk because the music was so great. <laughs> and that, you know, is just fortunate that we grew up in Southern California listening to Rodney on the rock uh, on the radio. He was the first uh, person or the first radio show to introduce not only what was going on in Hollywood and the and the LA scene, but also what was going on in other music scenes around the world in the late seventies. So, you know, music was was the uh, far more motivational element of punk for me. It was because the songs were so great, and uh, it's such an exciting medium. I just assumed if you were listening to, you know, whatever, what we now call classic rock, you know, the rock and roll, um, the popular rock and roll of the 70s, long hair, pot smoking stereotype of the typical rock band. I assumed those genres had ugly elements as well. Mm. But punk seemed new to me. And uh, the music was so exciting that I was able to overlook that stuff. And, you know, there was lifestyle elements almost in every corner of my life. There are lifestyle elements associated with those um, either genres of music or, you know, sports was another one. I love sports, but think of all the ugly associations with certain sports, you know, the anti-intellectualism, the, you know, the, the meathead kind of stereotype of jocks. That does not appeal to me, but I, it doesn't diminish one bit my enjoyment of the sport. We call those Raiders fans around here, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and by the way, to your credit, as somebody who loved all different styles of music, you express uh, a pretty su surprising love for the Jackson 5. You played the heck out of their greatest hits album when you were a kid, even performing. Has Bad Religion ever covered a Jackson 5 song? And if not, what would be the song that you guys would uh, put the Bad Religion spin on? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, first of all, I think there's a certain connection with Michael Jackson. He's a little older than me, mm. but when I was growing up, that was my first record, you know, one of the first records my mom ever bought for me. And um, I identified with him because at that time, don't forget, he was a kid from Gary, Indiana. My mom was from Indiana. And the Midway, they were Great Lakes kids, you know, Gary's right on the southern edge of Lake Michigan, the same shoreline that I grew up on, just I was about six or 75 miles north in Milwaukee. So, I mean, I identified with a lot of elements of this uh, singer that was, you know, I thought, oh, cool, kids can be recording stars. <laughs> so, <laughs> but of course, I could never uh, sing his voice is is a you know high soprano compared to even <laughs> as a kid I couldn't sing that I was an alto in in the chorus, 
in the choir. So I could never sing that. And even now, even though my range is pretty good still, I can't imagine a Jackson five song that we could do anything but damage to. So. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> I love love you telling the story of how the, uh, the bad religion logo came to be. Of course it is that, uh, that cross with the ghostbusters red line through it. Now ghostbusters comes out in 1984. That same year, you said that punk morphed into a monster. And I'm going to quote you here. Quote, I entertain that monster without accepting its ugly reality. What did you mean by this? Yeah, I think um, part of it is what I just got done elaborating on. You know, I was able to decouple the ugly elements of punk from the music. So what what I meant in that that passage you just read was that I was the center of attention by that time. You know, I was on stage and uh, the ugly elements were in the audience. I also elaborate throughout the book, really. I elaborate on what I focus on. I try to assume the best of people, even though I can identify, I'm not going to candy coat what I saw. You know, there was an ugly element out in that audience. But I got to assume, and I'm when I assume the best of people, I give them the credit to say, hey, they like what I like about this music. And if I focus on the music, then maybe I can make those ugly elements a little more palatable and uh, just do what I do best, which is sharing the musical force that I can achieve on my own. Lori Vitt was a professor of yours at UCLA that you spent a semester with in the field while doing some collecting and observational work in the Coachella Valley long before the music festival ever came to be, he pointed out that a band's lead singer on stage is a lot like a lizard on a rock. What was his point? <laughs> Man, if Lori Vitt's listening now, he's retired. In uh, Last I heard, he was in Florida. But if he's listening, we can thank him for um, immortalizing that image of a, of a rock singer like a lizard on a rock. That's <laughs> pretty I thought fun. you described it so well, too. That was perfect. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It's just, um, you know, lizards are territorial. And uh, Lori Vitt is a uh, herpetologist, so he studies uh, reptiles and reptile behavior. And uh, if you go... Go out in the desert, you can see evidence of this if you're observant and you go on a hike. You'll see that uh, on a warm morning, lizards, certain lizards are out there doing physical, uh, you know, behavioral displays to uh, warn off other potential male lizards and to attract females to their territory. You know, <laughs> whether it's correct or not, Laurie's description of it, because he was my professor at the time, really had an impact on the way I saw my role up on stage, which was, you know, but I never really believed it, but it was just, it showed me the creative interpretation of uh, kind of incorporating a scientific data-driven viewpoint with your everyday life. So the most successful lizards are are those who, who can defend and have the best territories. And th they are the ones that are found on the most prominent outcrops, which is like a stage, <laughs> you know, a rock stage. 
and they're the ones that attract the most females. So that's what the, uh, you know, it's very, uh, very biological in its focus, but that's what uh, Lori suggested was why the singer was the best position to be in the band. Greg, I've spent most of my adult life in Austin, Texas. I've seen lots of lizards on rocks uh, in watching <laughs> live shows over the last 20 plus years. Yeah, that's Stubbs, right? <laughs> Stubbs amongst other places too. Now, uh, back to your point on what punk rock had become in the mid-1980s. You admit, quote, bad religion had become background music for fuck-ups and thugs. How and why was there a big change in your audience by the late 1980s, though? Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what the cultural forces involved were. Part of it had to do with the storytelling about punk. What was punk at that time? You know, look at look at the kinds of uh, stories that were coming out in the media throughout the 80s. They weren't positive. They weren't constructive. They weren't talking, as I said, they weren't talking about the great music. They were talking about the ludicrous lifestyles and the nihilistic behaviors so i can't say exactly why but we i know that we were committed to still making uh, music and not fitting that stereotype you guys make it to mtv for the first time in 1993 on 120 minutes with american jesus which is the last track on your christmas themed album now uh this is a little bit of a personal show here but my wife and i just exposed our kids to their first bad religion within the last month or so, because we actually got to play the Christmas album for them. So American Jesus aside, what is your favorite song to either still listen to, or maybe even still perform it off of that Christmas album? Cause that is a great album, Greg. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. A lot. Of, I mean, we don't perform that album, but you know, I think my favorite song on there is Emmanuel because you don't hear it that often in the holiday albums. And it's a really tricky, a uh, little bit of a tricky melody. Hmm. And uh, I always appreciated the, the songs with good melodies. So that's one of them, uh, you know, that certainly is, if we, if we, oh, and I think we did end up playing that once live on uh, national television. I think we were on I don't know, either Jimmy Fallon or Conan O'Brien or something when the album came out. And that's the one we played. Chapter 24 is titled The Big Sellout. Now, the last time we spoke, we talked about your decision and the band's decision. It wasn't just your decision, the band's decision to sign with Atlantic in late 1993. It was a move that did receive the blessing of every band member. In 2023, though, what does the idea of selling out mean to you? <laughs> the, well, one thing that should be clear is that the criticism that is offered, you know, so when someone says this or that is a sellout, you got to hear that with, with a scrutinizing ear, because it says more about the critic, the person throwing the criticism than it does about the subject matter. You know, what are they talking about? So I titled that chapter of the big sellout because that was such a it's almost like a criticism of the criticism. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's saying what exactly is selling out about this situation? If it's something as simple as a band signing to a major label, uh, then we're guilty. 
but to me there's always something more to it it doesn't really matter who's marketing the music as much as it does the content of the music i always looked at it as if somebody wants to distribute our music and get it heard more widely uh i always thought that was a good thing and um so today what does sellout mean to me it really means compromising on your uh, integrity and compromising on your values. And I never thought that the person who was selling the music could interfere with that because my integrity for writing uh, good music was still intact. Yeah, and your creative license, which you guys never lost at all. Now, did Atlantic ever try and pin your music to a product that you had to put your foot down and say, this absolutely does not make sense for us? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we were always respected as um, as good businessmen. You know, I, I'm not really the businessman in the band, but we've got my co-writer, Brett, who ran the record label and still runs Epitaph Records. They knew that uh, we had a, a solid business foundation, so they weren't going to come in and try and change any business model. It would be laughable if they did. So it was almost implicit with the signing of the contract that things were just going to be pretty much business as usual, except maybe the distribution networks could be uh, more widely opened. So signing with Atlantic also required you to make a difficult professional decision. Up until that moment, you had been pretty good about balancing band life with academic life with uh, savvy scheduling around semesters, really allowing you to do both. Why did you ultimately decide to put your academic pursuit of completing that PhD at Cornell on hold to focus full-time on music after that signing? Well, uh, because there's only so many hours in a day. Uh, mm-hmm. I, w- I was doing full-time work as a graduate student, teaching uh, classes three or four times a week, You know, really tied to the campus, doing field work in the summertime. And... Uh, we had to go on tour and we had to write albums and you're right. I could balance it up until that time, but I really with, especially given the impression, whether it was real or not, I believed that the wider distribution of records in more territories than ever required us uh, as if we wanted to be, you know, good to our uh, listeners, it required us to visit more places. So in fact, the touring schedule did in fact pick up. I had a I had a family life that was uh, young and starting out, and you know I had a had to spend time with the family as well. So something had to give, and uh, luckily academics can be uh, put on hold for a period of time, and I took a leave of absence. Not long after the leave of absence, you suffered three major blows in your life in the mid nineteen nineties. All in relative quick succession. First, Brett abruptly quits the band. Then you and your wife separate and ultimately divorce with her moving your two children a few miles away in Ithaca and your two managers with whom you had an incredible working relationship with announced that they were unable to continue managing because they were taking promotions at Sony. Man, that's a lot for one guy to deal with any one of those things, much less all three within less than a year. What allowed you to really start and uh, accelerate that recovery process? Yeah, well, I just think, um, you know, when you go through uh, stuff like that, you have to have one thing that you can cling to 
And luckily for me, it wasn't drugs or alcohol. You know, it wasn't something to take me away from the reality. It was actually something sitting right there in front of me that was part of my reality, which was creative musical endeavors, you know, and it just, I went into high gear and uh, redoubled my efforts to record and write music. It made a lot of sense, you know, because it's the one thing I could always rely on that was never far away was my creativity. And it helped me through uh, the difficult times. You know, now that I was had to also, you know, support a, a divided household, I didn't really spend a lot of money on basic household things anymore. But I did spend money on uh, musical equipment and making sure that my home studio was up to the snuff. So I, I spent a lot of money uh, getting really good recording equipment so that I could be present in the kids' lives when they were, they came over half of the week, you know, I was still a split custody situation. So when they were with me, I could I could be domestic, but then when they were with their mom, I could spend the time still being sort of present at home if they needed me, but I was in the studio. So it became a time of a lot of creative output. And that's good because I lost my um, songwriting partner when Brett left also. And you know, I had to now write you know, entire albums worth of material, whereas before we collaborated. Now, considering that music was such an important child, a uh, part of your childhood, was that something that you put heavy emphasis on with your kids? And I know you have uh, at least one that's grown now and some that are a little bit younger, making sure that they uh, they gain an appreciation for music as well, considering that you are their dad. <laughs> well, in our household, as you may have guessed uh, from reading the book, I use the analogy of graphing you <laughs> yeah. um, because, you know, it's like a university. We don't we provide the incentive by leading by example in our family. So I never like forced my kids to go to music lessons, for instance, but we always had pianos, guitars, and uh, rhythm instruments laying around, electronic instruments everywhere, so that if they're interested in it, there's no excuse. So that let's say uh, kids sitting around saying, I'm bored. That doesn't fly because there's so <laughs> many opportunities to do something interesting with the music instruments that are laying around the house. And I, I think that that has inspired the kids and who are, as you said, two of them are now adults, but uh, music's incredibly important in their lives. So do all of your kids play at least one musical instrument then? Well, you could say that in okay. the same, in the same vein that I played when I was, now, remember, my youngest, Stanley, is only eight years old. So, oh, <laughs> uh, But yeah, I would consider him an, uh, an a capable musician at his age, just because he has so much familiarity with piano and rhythm. And actually, he's a good, he plays synthesizer, too. Yeah. But uh, and, and my other kids, Ella and Graham, they both um, play stringed instruments. And, uh, you know, music's really important to them. You mentioned the sheer amount of work that was involved with Brett quitting the band, but he ultimately rejoins in 2001. How is this time away from Bad Religion beneficial for you and everyone else in the band? Well, it's hard to say beneficial because uh, 
whenever you lose a family member or something, you know, Brett's like a family in the band. If the band is a family, he's a crucial member of it. But him being away, obviously the best thing that could have happened is what happened. And that was he took care of himself so that he could be a functioning member of our life. And that's what is most important to us. But he, he had to leave the band in order, I, I guess, to come back to it. And as you know, we when he came back, we were able to create the process of belief, which is really you know, a, a tremendous comeback album. It was some of our best writing together. So I don't know, do you look at that as a benefit or is that beneficial? I guess, you know, he, he did what he had to do so that he could come back and um, we could continue our legacy, I guess. I think there's something to be said also about separating yourself from that which you love to gain a true appreciation for it. And when you come back, you're just that much stronger because you already have a familiarity with how things work. And so you can now also anything that you've learned in the meantime to that process too. Oh, uh, that's a good way of looking at it. But of course we'd be speculating. True. I mean, uh, personally, it gave me appreciation for our uh, songwriting partnership. So, I mean, mm. you know, that helped to, to grow that and to make it apparent how much our songwriting meant to each other. You quote the Bible once in this book, at least once that I recognize, and that would be in the epilogue. Fittingly, it was from Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting book in that tome. Was the irony intended? And why did, quote, there is nothing new under the sun resonate with you enough to want to include it in your memoir? <laughs> well, I mean, Ecclesiastes has, uh, you know, I, I always thought it was the most, I hesitate to say least conservative chapter. I, I think that's a good way to put it, like stripping yeah. away stripping away the political meaning of that. Exactly. Taking yeah. It to a more truer meaning. Yeah. I think that, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. But the, but what people, uh, what, it, what resonates most is the idea that there's nothing new under the sun, meaning the seasons come and the seasons go, you know, and you like to think about, you know, punk as being revolutionary and punk as changing some complexion of modern society. But in reality, you know, and I'm not sure exactly the context that you're speaking of, because uh, I only used it, I threw it out there as a quick reference. But it basically, I was trying to say that punk didn't really change society. It's more like society accepted punk, but punk is sort of saying the same thing that the hippies were saying in the 1960s as well. Yeah. You know, and it just, we did it in a different way and with different songs. And I feel like there is nothing new about that rebellion. It's not a, a unique kind of rebellion. You know, I guess the one thing you can strive and intellectualize what the rebellion was, uh, as I, I also indicated, you know, maybe with that image on the cover of our album, Suffer, you know, it was really the first time that the rebellion came to the suburbs, you know, mm. where now rebellion was taking it. We always thought of like the youth movement, the youth 
rebellion as taking as taking place as an urban rebellion but maybe with suffer it marked a change where you, the rebellion took place in the suburbs rebelling against those malls and and those uh houses that all look the same but then all you have to do is read Norman Mailer and you realize that in the 60s, he was defining something called the new left. And in that description of the new left, he also talks about the rebellion of those strip malls in those suburbs. That was the 1960s. So, I mean, and that is what leads me to the Ecclesiastics uh, quote, you know, it's there's nothing new under the sun. Was that from Mailer's The Army of the Night? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I have to thank you because I literally just bought that book. My wife and I are about to go on our 10 year wedding anniversary to Mexico. And that uh, is my, that is going to be my beach read for at least a, a couple of days. So oh, thank you for that, that unintentional your, recommendation. Well, I'll congratulate you on your marriage, but you know, not necessarily reading the book. It's, <laughs> it's, it is a great, it's a good book, it, but um you'll enjoy it but it, i think you can do it in the afternoon if you're diligent it's a pretty short read so oh is, is that right okay well i'll make sure to grab a couple more than <laughs> i guess so uh, what, what is something that you've learned about ants uh throughout your uh your time as a uh, working professional that's not in a band of course that you think people should know about well i mean i did a study on ants if that's what you're uh, and i hope you're talking about the uh the animal not not the family relation. <laughs> no, just the animal. Yeah. Um, just that uh, ants are unpredictable. You know, it's very, they're very difficult to study. They don't follow the typical sociobiological framework. It's hard to apply natural selection to them because I studied them in the uh, deciduous forests of Mexico and uh, found that they were very haphazard. These colonies of ants were very haphazard in how they utilize their resources. Hmm. And uh, that's not the story that you're taught in natural selection, where no. every organism is finely tuned to uh, its environment and makes uh, very efficient, so, uh, quote unquote, decisions about uh, use or its resource utilization. I love that you are unapologetic in your love for sports. You are a fan of the Milwaukee teams above all else, the Brewers. And by the way, baseball purists and punk purists, a very same group, a very similar group of people. Uh, the Green Bay Packers, too. And then the Milwaukee Bucks. Last time we spoke, Greg, it was the summer of 2020, I believe, where uh, we had the pause and everything because of COVID. And ultimately, the league starts back up. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks heading into that break were on track to break the Chicago Bulls record for regular season wins. They ultimately don't get it done in 2020, but they do in 2021. Where does that rank amongst your favorite sports highlights, getting the uh, root the Bucks on to a world championship like that? First time in 50 years that the Bucks won. And uh, I was lucky enough to go there with my, you know, my dad's uh, went to the game with his friends. My dad's 86 now. Uh, and 50 years ago, when they won the championship with a guy named uh, Lou Alcinder, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm -hmm. he had changed his name by that time. But I went to the games. Uh, so I was in second grade, you know, or something like that. First grade, I guess. And um 
you know, dad brought us to that game too. So it's a 50 year span that was uh, pretty emotional. And um, we were able to be out there in the deer district for the championship uh, in 2021. And uh, that ranks right up there. You know, it's a great highlight. I'd say my emotions were just as high that night as they were uh, low when uh, the Brewers choked in the world series in 1982. So mm you know, maybe someday we'll get back. What, was that yeah. Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, that team? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And Raleigh Fingers was pitching, and I mean, but, you know, anyway. Oh, Raleigh with the world-class mustache. Yeah. Now, as far yeah. as your, your Packers fandom goes, has learning about Aaron Rodgers and his life philosophies over these last few years made it more difficult to root for him on the field? Well, here's the thing. It's funny you're saying this. I'm I'm barely over my depression about what happened on Sunday. So I I don't. Yeah. But after they won the Super Bowl, what was that? 2010 or something? 2011 maybe. You know, it was clear to me that this was going to be a struggle. I think Aaron Rodgers. I was a huge Brett Favre fan. He always left you feeling hopeful. And uh, Aaron, I think, has been especially once he starts talking, it just leaves you with a downer feeling. So, <laughs> but here's the thing. It's sports, man. It's like we have, the, he, he has the most talented arm in all of football, you know? So as long as he's on the field, we've got a chance. I'm really not interested in his political philosophy. I couldn't care less, you know, just shut up and throw a dime to a receiver who can actually catch the ball. And then I'll be happy. <laughs> so, you know, maybe I'm a little, I don't, I don't philosophize sports, you know, mm -hmm. sports are not, sports aren't everything in my life. They're a part of life. And because of that, there's going to be a whole variety of philosophical opinions and lunatic, lunatic ideas. And that shouldn't interfere with the enjoyment of the game. Fan is short for fanatic after all. So do you think uh, Aaron Rodgers does come back next year then? Because there's a lot of speculation right now based on him not wanting to trade jerseys with a uh, rookie wide receiver that uh, he's played his final game with Green Bay. Yeah, who knows? I, I, I think, you know, the, the sports writers are have to make a story out of every yeah. gesture, right? So who knows why he didn't share his jersey. But the point is, I even as much as I hate to say it, you know, I think they need to get Devonte Adams back somehow. <laughs> so I, yeah. I can't imagine that Devonte is happy with uh, their result either. So yeah, especially I now mean, that his supposed best friend's car is about to get traded someplace else. Now he's, although maybe yeah. he likes living in Las Vegas. That was one of the big reasons why he wanted to go there. I will say though, that you guys seem to have found a diamond with Christian Watson and who knows what Romeo Dobbs turns into is so at least that receiving core is looking a little bit better, even without Adams in there like he has been for the last several years. Yeah, I would say that based on the last game, you know, Christian Watson is a, a shining gem, even though he got off to a rough start. But uh, Dobbs, you could not have thrown a more perfect pass, which was at a crucial moment in the game. And Dobbs didn't catch it right i mean it was a, a college or high school level drop 
And given that, you know, I think we've run out of steam because we had Aaron Rodgers, the arrogant guy who mm -hmm. thinks it doesn't matter who you give me as a receiver, I will still win games. That's his arrogance. And I think that's his downfall right there. Uh, you know, we have to, we got to surround him. It's not just a good offensive line. We, we need someone who can bust it and pull those catches down. And um, I don't know who's going to be. Christian Watson hopefully will continue to develop, but we need uh, more gifted uh, receiving core. Mm. All right, last question, Greg. Are you still a punk? And if so, how? <laughs> what I think of myself, you know, I know we're in an era now where everyone is pressed upon to define themselves. And if you ask me, that's one of the worst elements of our modern society. It's like, what the fuck, man? I don't know. <laughs> you know, everyone should be in the old days. We were all searching for our identity, you know, try and know, try and learn something about yourself. Now you're supposed to define yourself all of a sudden you say, you know, and you're pressed upon to define yourself to that. I say, fuck you. I don't have to define jack shit, man. It's what <laughs> other people think of me, you know, and ask other people whether they think I'm a punk. And that's way more important to answer your question. It ain't important to me though. What's important to me is if I'm still searching, you know, and I'm still trying to learn and be good to people and, uh, you know, at the end of it all, what people say about you, that's like I said in another book that I wrote, A Meaningful Afterlife, is what people think of you. And uh, hopefully, you know, I've got, you know, more people that think good of me than bad. And so I think given the tone of my answer to your question, you can answer if I'm still a punk or not. That's not a beautifully punk answer. I don't know what the punk <laughs> is. He is Greg Graff, and the new book is an excellent read. It's called Punk Paradox. It is his memoir, and I think it does a uh, great job of uh, not only filling in some of the gaps of Do What You Want, the Bad Religion memoir, but it is also its own piece of work as well. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Greg, always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for the time, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, hope we can talk again soon. I need to give a quick shout out to my friend Michael Trejo, who helped brainstorm some of the questions that you heard there at the end. Also, thank you to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.